Recently, I was reflecting on our 15 months of the Living Local podcast. We have covered a huge range of subjects with the aim of displaying the equally huge range of issues and concepts United Way works on with our community partners. One issue we have not touched on with the podcast is our work supporting programs aimed at the LGBTQ community. This has been in the back of my mind, and I was just waiting for the right opportunity. As luck would have it, just a few weeks ago, Jerry Kuhn, president and CEO of Diverse and Resilient, a United Way program partner that works with the LGBTQ community, presented at an internal meeting. In this podcast, Jerry shares a lot about his work and that of DNR, but also a good amount about his personal journey from a young man in a small town trying to discover his identity to finding his tribe in grad school with UWM's gay community. Now, Jerry has spent two and a half years at the helm of Wisconsin's largest LGBTQ-serving nonprofit and has faced some challenges. Shortly after the 2016 presidential election, the DNR building was the subject of a series of vandalisms. That's where we start. Living Local, telling the stories that connect us. A United Way of Greater Milwaukee and Waukesha County podcast. Most recently, people may have heard of Diverse and Resilient if they're just kind of scanning the news. Last year, when you experienced some some hate crimes, really mm-hmm. some vandalism mm-hmm. to your building, mm-hmm. you've been in your position for about two and a half years, and that was kind of kind of early on in your career with Diverse and Resilient. How did you respond? Yeah, it was much more difficult than I was expecting. I mean, I'm a pretty even keel kind of guy, and things get thrown at you, and you just deal with them and move on. This had a more emotional component to it. And just uh, a little background. So the first incident happened sometime in the middle of December. And then we had more incidences in uh, January and February. But we started putting together some of the pieces in terms of patterns. And we were able to, to fairly quickly establish that this really wasn't what a lot of people were thinking. So you use the expression hate crime. We weren't sure. And actually, initially, when, when we first had it was some broken windows, interestingly enough, I think most people wanted us to label it as that. And partly, it was because we were just post-election. There were a lot of um, emotions going on, and certainly within the LGBTQ community. And I was resistant to stating it as a fact, that that's what was going on, because we really didn't know. But there was some pushback from some people that I think really wanted to link it to the political environment, and I I just wasn't going to do that. Um, But then we had more instances, probably by about the third time was when the word fag was spray-painted on the building. For me, that really changed things in terms of my view of what was going on, because that was pretty clear that it was directed um, at us in a different way. And we were fearful. I don't know that we actually expected to experience that. I mean, vandalism is directed at a building, but this felt very, very personal. I mean, the United Way stepped forward. Um, Literally, the first email I got um, was from Nicole Angrisano. Just saying, what you know, whatever we can do, and then just kind of stepping back, which was so incredibly comforting. And then we 
we were able to determine who it was and work with the police. So the issue is resolved. It's over. We're moving. We've moved on. And you mentioned, too, that this political climate has been challenging to your work. Can you talk a little bit more about that? You know, obviously, everybody has their personal beliefs and opinions, and everyone's entitled to that. Shortly after the election, and actually it was really maybe more after the inauguration, the LGBT community really started feeling under attack because I would suggest we are under attack. You know, there's just there's just attempts to really make us invisible again, attempts to remove those kinds of questions. And certainly in the area of public health, I mean, it's so critical that we're able to identify the unique uh, differences, you know, among any subgroup of, of, of individuals, and certainly that's true with LGBTQ folks. So, so it's been a real unpleasant wake-up for us in a way that we just weren't accustomed to because there really had been so many successes. I mean, uh, we could freely, you know, join the military. There, you know, we could, we could get married. There's just been so much progress. So this feels like a real, a real setback. And my personal opinion is is that this is a blip in the radar because ultimately as people get to know us, you know, we're good people. <laughs> Jerry, you mentioned that the LGBTQ community faces unique health needs or, or just different health needs from the um, heterosexual community. Can you explain a little bit more about the sure. differences there? Sure. And, you know, some of uh, some people might be familiar with just this this whole concept of um, health disparities related to one's just physical environment Dif- differences in terms of people's lives and growing up impact impact their health whether it's race gender economic class those sorts of things so for LGBTQ people one one difference which is rarely surprised to anyone is certainly the HIV rate amongst amongst gay and bisexual men. But things which surprise people are things like maybe the rate of drinking or smoking. You know, those are, those are coping tools. And um, certainly historically, if you were gay or lesbian, where you went to meet people were in gay bars. Now, that world has changed pretty significantly with um, social media and with more acceptance. There's, there's more ways to meet people. But there's still this... Um, stigma, there's this isolation, and people do things and make choices that aren't often healthy. We do a great deal of work at Diverse and Resilient around intimate partner violence and community violence. You know, the rates of intimate partner violence are not greater than our heterosexual peers, but it's certainly not understood as well in terms of the organizations that might well, that a heterosexual, whether it's a man or a woman in a heterosexual relationship, I mean, men, men experience um, partner violence as well. But the organizations they reach out to understand the context of a heterosexual relationship, and they don't necessarily understand the context of a same-sex relationship and certainly don't understand the context of a relationship that might involve someone who's transgender and then, and then mental health. Um, and, you know, I'll give an example. There, there was just, uh, I watch, if there's an LGBTQ-themed movie, I watch it. You know, I just am kind of a student of LGBTQ film. Um, and there was a recent movie I watched, and it was delightful. It was called Akron. But it portrayed this, you know, these young, two young gay men in Akron, Ohio. But they're out and about in the community, and they're holding hands, and they're kissing, you know, all these things that heterosexual young people might do. 
And I'm waiting, just waiting as I'm watching this movie for the gay basher to come in. And it never happened. And I read some reviews of the movie, and people are saying, this is just so unrealistic. This, this is not how gay people can live. You, know, you can't be that open without fear of being physically attacked. So, so just consider the toll that that takes on people. My, my partner and I, we've been together for 31 years, and we're walking in downtown Milwaukee. This was maybe 10 years ago. We were just walking down Kilburn Avenue. This car of teenagers drove by and rolled down the window and just yelled out, hey, faggots. And we literally stopped and looked at each other and kind of looked up and down at ourselves and, and just said, what, what is it about us? You know, what? And yet there must have been something. I don't know that they yell that at everybody who's walking down the street. If there's every, any two men walking together, you know, they might have been going to a Bucks game or something. But those things are just very real still in 2017. So th- those things take a toll and, and impact our health. How does Diverse and Resilient work to address and kind of bring, um, bring some more equality yeah. th- to that issue? You know, everything we do in terms of the interventions we do, they're all what we call evidence-based interventions. Some people might be familiar with that term. Sometimes we just refer to it as EBIs, so evidence-based interventions. So in other words, it's not that DNR is so smart that we come up with all these great interventions, but we take scientifically proven interventions um, and we tailor them, though, to the LGBTQ community. And part of that is really just being open, accepting, and acknowledging that LGBTQ people exist and are good and are worthy and, and all of that. So, so, the, so the tailoring that to fit an LGBTQ um, audience is, is really fairly simple, but we still make sure that the fidelity is there in terms of the evidence-based intervention. And increasingly, uh, much of our work is really geared towards young people, particularly around alcohol use, tobacco use, and safe dates, healthy relationships. It's really around young people. And increasingly, young people don't just have LGBTQ friends. So increasingly, the work we do is really inclusive of just all young people. But we absolutely set the stage. I mean, not about beating people over the head, but that this is Respect and dignity and equality is just a non-negotiable. It's just an assumption, and it is not negotiable. I mean, when it comes to health care issues, particularly when you're talking about sexual health, uh, which we do a lot around in terms of HIV and, and STI prevention, you know, it's very personal. People need to feel comfortable. Jerry, I'm not sure when, when you came of age or kind of what your experiences have <laughs> sure. been, um, but I'd love, to, I'd love to learn a little bit more about you. Yeah. And maybe, you know, in this work that you do with young people today in 2017, how, how was your experience yeah. as maybe a teenager different from yeah. a teenager today? Yeah. And I'll just lay it out there. So yeah. I, I'm, I'm 59. I graduated from high school. Yeah, oh no, gosh. I'm not kidding. <laughs> I graduated from high school in 1976. So just briefly, that was a very different time. I mean, it was for me, it was the proverbial going to the library, hoping no one was looking, going to the card catalog, and trying to find the section that had anything about anything to do with, at that time, I'll just use the word gay, and then sneaking to that section in the library and finding some books and being terrified about checking them out. I will say that in 1980, I came to, I moved 
back to Milwaukee. I, I grew up in Menominee Falls. was in Stevens Point for my undergrad. But I moved back to Milwaukee in 1980 to go to school graduate school at UWM, and there was this organization called, it was called the Gay Community at UWM, that's what it was called, and I've just never looked back. I mean, I dove in, and it was amazing, and I still know some of those people from that long ago. So it was just a different time, and then, of course, AIDS first reared its horrible head, you know, really at about that time, in about 1981, 1982, you just couldn't find any information on it, and... No one would talk about it. There was certainly no support from government, you know. Um, but we we persevered. You know, we just did what we had to do. Um, so flash forward to now, and you know, it's just part of. I don't. It's just so much a part of the culture. I was almost going to say pop culture, but it's it's bigger than that. I mean, on the TV, just everywhere. There's so much exposure to LGBTQ reality. So it's at least out there. You know, there's, there's, there's no need to feel alone in the same way. Although I do, I don't know this to be true, but, you know, I think in Wisconsin, you know, I call it the Madison-Milwaukee-Green Bay Triangle, you know, that there's just fairly good resources there if you're a young person growing up. I'm not so sure that's true in some rural communities outside of that. Um, certainly people have access to the Internet and, and everything else. But, well, and, and young people who at least I work with who are out are really very, very fiercely proud of their identity. They're, fe- they're fiercely owning of their identity. Like, this, this, is, this is my reality, and this is what it is, and you better darn accept it. <laughs> I'd like to get back a little bit to your work at DNR. So it sounds like your focus is really on young people. Is yes. that your entire focus, or no. is, is it broader? No, it's a, great, it's a okay. great question. So much of the focus is on young people, as I said, around alcohol, tobacco, um, relationships, and, and really just understanding their sexuality. Certainly that's true around HIV prevention, primarily around young African-American. And we use the expression MSM, men who have sex with men. Um, it sounds pretty clinical, but not everyone, not every man who has sex with men identifies as gay or bisexual. A huge focus around that because the HIV rate is, is just really so unacceptable within that population. And there's all kinds of reasons, again, social determinants of health. I I always want to make real clear when I talk about these disparities. In our view, it is not about personal responsibility or lack thereof that results in things. It's about all these social determinants of health, which impact decisions people make and and, and even the options people have to make uh, healthy choices. In terms of any age, we also do a great deal of work um, state ride around intimate partner violence and community violence, and I talked on that briefly earlier. But that that work is irrespective of age. And then even around HIV and STI testing, it's a it's a pretty broad base of primarily men, uh, some women that we work with in that regard. I mean, we don't anyone can come in. We don't exclude anyone. The services are free, but but that age range certainly is broader than just young people. What needs to happen in the community to make it just a better environment for LGBTQ youth, but also 
LGBTQ people of any age. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna talk, and then maybe I'll prioritize them because the first thing that comes to mind is is just just policy, public policy. I mean, for example, Wisconsin was the first state in the nation to adopt a non-discrimination law that prohibited discrimination against lesbians and gays in um, employment, public accommodation, and housing. First in the country. And this was, I believe, 1982. It was uh, Governor Lee Dreyfus. was a Republican governor. Um, and we're incredibly proud of that history. But transgender folk, it wasn't even in anybody's mind at that time. So here we are, 2017. You would like to think that that could be an easy thing just to add, and it's not. So, you know, obviously, what, what is that message that's being sent to young people, whether you're trans or not? You know, I mean, the message is, is that some people are more valuable than others to be protected. At least that's my view of it. I mean, there's three words that are frequently used, homophobia, heterosexism, and I choose to use heterosupremacy. And homophobia, people hear it, but I just don't think they identify. And I gave the example that I don't believe people are afraid of gay people. I do think that some men sometimes are 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 fearful of being seen as gay if they're maybe too sensitive, too supportive, whatever, whatever case, case might be, you know, or publicly supportive. You know, I think some people just are afraid of that, and particularly men. And then heterosexism, I don't, I mean, sexism, I think people absolutely get right away. Heterosexism should work, but my sense is it just doesn't really, it doesn't take people somewhere. But when I use the expression heterosupremacy, I think people get that. And particularly because then it's very clear that there is an assumption that being heterosexual is better. And I do personally believe that many advocates for LGBT equality still are have heterosupremist views. You know, and, and the one thing, I mean, I never, ever ask people this, but I presume most parents absolutely want their children to be heterosexual. And they can say because it's, life is easier and all that, which is, which is true, but I, you know, it may be deeper than that. Um, in a way that other groups that experience challenges wouldn't wish for their children to be other than who they are. Mm. Um, so I think there's just a lot of baggage there. So I think, you know, you, you asked what are the one or two things. I, I think you know, so policy, I think people just really recognizing the reality of that the reality of that some people by law are treated differently than others is just bizarre to me. And I actually think it's incredibly un American. <laughs> I think I think it's just incredibly un American. Um, and unpatriotic to have those views about any other American. One thing I definitely wanted to touch on with Diverse and Resilient is you have this Rainbow Alliance for Youth. Can mm -hmm. you tell me a little bit about that and the, yeah. the leadership training you do with the, the youth that you serve? Yeah, so we work with youth in various cities throughout, throughout Wisconsin, and it's gotten tougher as I, I, I use this expression – the fragile LGBTQ infrastructure. And what I mean by that is I think people just assume that there's a lot of resources out there for LGBTQ folks. 
you know, and there's college campuses have groups or whatever, but but within the broader community, I mean, Diverse and Resilient is the largest LGBTQ organization in the state. And we have we have 16 employees and we're the largest. And people will go, really? That's amazing. You know, assuming there's others that are bigger. And I'll say, well... You would think there would be a big state yeah. organization. And, and I'll say, well, who do you think that might be? And no one can come up with anything. And the other statewide groups are Fair Wisconsin, which is a public policy and advocacy organization, which has one and a half staff. And then there's GSAFE, which is based in Madison and is about um, safe schools. And they do work with GSAs and other things, and they've got like three or four staff, and they're statewide. So it's what I consider call the fragile LGBTQ infrastructure. So getting back to the Rainbow Alliance for Youth, there used to be a more robust, you know, there used to be more robust community centers like in La Crosse and organizations in Eau Claire and in Appleton and the Fox Valley. And, you know, they're just very hard to get funding, you know, it's hard, difficult to get funding for those. So we we relied on those organizations who would have youth, and then we were the um, the umbrella organization, kind of convening youth statewide. Um, so we still do that, but it's more of a challenge because we need to connect with young people in those communities, not necessarily through those organizations that have either changed or no longer exist. But we've got a pretty good group. You know, we do well in Eau Claire and La Crosse, um, Appleton, Green Bay. You know, sadly, sadly, Wausau, Stevens Point, that part of the state, we don't, although we're, we're developing real connections with, with Stevens Point. And um, what does the group work on? Yeah, they, we, once they, they get together a couple times a year in various locations and really just talk about issues that are important to LGBTQ youth in Wisconsin and in their communities, and then we're providing them with, you know, I feel like it's such an overused term, but this leadership skills. Um, but here's young people who are meeting with other successful LGBTQ people from successful organizations and um, talking about impacting things in their communities and just being a resource for other LGBTQ people and their communities. So it isn't necessarily really earth-shattering, earth-moving kinds of things, but it's still real important work. And a piece of this is every other year, GSAFE, we partner with GSAFE in Madison to put on a conference called Safe Schools, Safe Communities, at different locations um, in Wisconsin. And then the opposite years of that, Diverse and Resilient puts on something called the uh, Youth HIV Prevention Institute. And in the early days, it really was about HIV prevention, but now it's much more about just leadership skills training, things along that line. So this last summer, we were at the Environmental Station, which is outside of Stevens Point, and had a group of about 26 young people from throughout the state just doing leadership and community building skills, which then they can take back to their own to their own communities, and let me just add, you know, that concept seems really strange sometimes. Like, well, how can a couple of kids make much of a difference? But when you're part of a smaller, clearly identified group, so I can think back to my days, like at the gay community at UWM. You know, I was real involved there. I absolutely had an impact on other people who weren't. You know, the proverbial drop in the water and then the rings that that creates, um, because young people 
birds of a feather flock together. You know, young people with similar interests connect with other people with similar interests, and leaders develop in those groups and have an impact. Um, so it's really just a grassroots effort at getting we're all trying to figure out who are the people who are going to replace us. You know, that's a piece of it as well. And there's staff at DNR who were members of, like, the Rainbow Alliance really? for Youth. Absolutely. Wow. You know, that are now employees, um, and that's wonderful. Well, Jerry Kuhn, thank you so much for sitting down with us today and for all the work you do with Diverse and Resilient, supporting all of the youth of our community and making sure that they live healthy lives and, um, and the LGBTQ community at large. Great. Thanks. It was a pleasure being here. That was Jerry Kuhn, president and CEO of Diverse and Resilient, a Milwaukee-based nonprofit and United Way program partner that has the aim of eliminating health disparities, ending discrimination, and building leadership and confidence among LGBTQ people. Living Local is produced by myself, Katie Kuhn, Melissa Hannon, Brian McCaig, and John Waldbauer. A special thank you to Ethan and Maeve McCaig for providing the music and voice talent for our introduction.